Hope everyone's having a great Sunday morning so far. Welcome home, family. So glad to see everyone here this morning. I know I move a lot, so I got to just clear space. We're going to continue our series going through the book of Exodus, and we'll be in Exodus chapter 34 here in a bit, so you can turn to the Bibles to prepare for that. Uh, and it's so appropriate that we just sing that song. Uh, Ty and Keely do such a good job trying to think of where I'm going, because sometimes I don't get them the where the message is going to go, but they try to incorporate good songs in that, and that's a perfect song because we're going to look in Exodus 34, and we're going to see about focusing on Jesus and about how glorious God is and how the fact that God's glory actually transforms us when we behold it. And so that's what we're going to be, just a, you know, spoiler alert. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are and how you love us. Thank you for your truth that moves throughout history. Lord, I just pray for this time as we open up your word that you bring it to life in our hearts and our minds that we can truly see you for who you are, that we can behold you and know you. Lord, I pray for everyone here, everyone who calls River Valley home. I pray for whatever is going on in their lives. It could be joyous, it could be sorrowful. But I pray that they can lean on you and find comfort and meaning and purpose in you. I pray for this community, that we can come around each other and love as we've been called to love. Lord, we just thank you so much for building this church, making this church what it is, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So we've all been there in our lives. We wonder what's going on, we try to change, but yet it doesn't seem to take. We do it again. Whether it's that one bad habit we find ourselves going back to, or whether it's that attitude we have with someone, or if it's that snapping at that loved one, or losing your cool while you're driving, or maybe you're gossiping when you know you shouldn't be sharing those details, or you're looking at things you know you shouldn't be looking at, or those, those things that keep on pulling us, and we know we shouldn't be doing them, and yet we struggle to change, and we can't figure out why we can't change, and no matter seemingly what we do, we can't seem to get out of that rut. On why can't we change, and we think, well, maybe I just need to pick myself up by my bootstraps, or I just need to be more disciplined, or I just need to get my act together, and we think, maybe that's the solution, right? Maybe I can just will it up. Maybe I can just be a better person by declaring I'm going to be a better person, but maybe that might work for a little while. Maybe we can go to some self-help books, and that, that gets us going for a little bit, but it doesn't seem to last or so easy to slide right back into those old patterns, and we're wondering what is going on with us. Well, if, I, if that's you, I'm sorry to break it to you, you're human. That's the human experience. That ever since the beginning, ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God, that has been the human experience that we are dealing and wrestling with and fighting against sin. And if you're a Christian, you feel it more intently and more powerfully. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit in you. You know you should follow God, but yet you struggle and we lean our own might and we just can't do it. But there is a solution. But amazingly, the solution actually focuses not on ourselves, but actually turning our focus back on where our focus is supposed to be, which is our glorious God. And I believe we see that in chapter 34. 
And we're just going to be reading the first part and the last part of this chapter uh, for the sake of time. And so we're starting in verse 1, and it says this, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and claimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon your iniquity and our sin, our iniquity and our sin, and take it. Before all your people I will do marvels, such has not been created uh, in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Then he states that covenant, a covenant that we've read multiple times in here as we've been going through Exodus, but then it picks up the story back in verse 29. It says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, and he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses. Behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he had commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. It's a pretty interesting story we see here in Exodus 34. And what are we supposed to take out of it? If you remember where we are in the story of Abide with them in the, in the wilderness with manna and with water, he brought them to Mount Sinai, this holy mountain where his presence descended, and he gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them the law. He gave them the, and he called Moses up there to give him the kind of the blueprints for the tabernacle, his, his presence among the people. And while he was doing that, the people were going into idolatry, and they had made a, an idol, a golden calf, and were worshiping it. And when Moses came down with the tablets, he threw them down on the ground and disgusted the people and in anger. And the people were repenting, and Moses interceded for the people. And so now Moses went back up in the mountain, and he receives again the, the, the commands, the laws of God. God tells him to fashion new uh, tablets to take back down to the people, and he does so. And that's where our story picks up, is that Moses is now journeying back down to the people after meeting with God, and we get this interesting description that now, after meeting with God, after God's presence passed by Moses and how he declared the Lord, Moses 
face was shining. It's the first time it said that this has kind of happened to Moses, but now when Moses had meets with God, his face kind of reflects that he was meeting with God. And so what are we supposed to take from this? And I think this actually gives us a reality of how we're changed. Because you will be blueprint or a little foreshadow or a little sneak peek of what awaits all of us actually is what's happening to all of us who know Jesus Christ. Because the fact is God's glory is transformative. That we cannot help when we meet the glorious God to be changed by the very simple fact that we've met with God. We've seen God. And that is the glorious gospel in which we know is that actually just by knowing who God is, seeing the glorious God and how he has saved us, we are changed not from our own effort, not from our own strength, not from our own willpower, but we're changed because God changes us as we see him. That you will be transformed by God's glory. We see this played out that God is a glorious God. We talked about that a little bit last week, about Moses asking to see God's glory, and God says, my goodness will pass by you. And we get that kind of sense again in this chapter when God says, hey, I'm coming, and he declares his name to Moses, and he declares who he is to Moses, that Moses is getting a, a little glimpse of who God is that he worships a glorious God, that we worship a glorious God. And when we're talking about God's glory, we're talking about his divine weightiness, that he is God and there is no other God like him. And he's a glorious God that we can't understand. And if we even were to gaze, to try to gaze upon his full glory, we would die, as he declared to Moses in chapter 33. But he is this glorious being. So in the story, we see how Moses just catches a glimpse of God, how he, how he declares to Moses who he is, how he told to, how he passed before him and claimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and bounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression for sins. And you see the gloriousness of God. And Moses was on the front seats and saw it for himself. As God declared who he was, he saw his glory. It's a glimpse of it. I love how in back, back in chapter 33, he came and get all of it. That God has to almost hide him from his full presence. And then when God has passed by, Moses can look out and kind of see God's backside. And that is enough to change him, to see this glorious God. That is who he is. He's transformed. And now in the story, changed. His face shows, shows, shines, English. His face shines with a reflective light, because God is so glorious. It's funny, the, the Hebrew actually literally says his face or his head had horns coming out of it. And we're like, what does that mean? His figure of speech, they're like beams of light coming out of his face as he came down the mountain. And when we realize, this is actually what the whole book of Exodus has been trying to do, is a really bit by bit revealing the glory of God. 
that bit by bit God's glory is revealed more and more to the people. As revealed to, to Moses in the burning bush, as revealed to Moses in the signs that he's going to go take to Pharaoh, as revealed to the whole world through the plagues in the power of God's hand uh, in, in Egypt. It's revealed again and again through God leading them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It's revealed in how God provides for them manna in the morning and quail at night, how he makes rocks pour out water for their thirst, how God is there for them. It's revealed with God descends upon Mount Sinai, this holy mountain, and his presence is there in this cloud and thunder and trumpet sounds. And again and again we see how excellent and how this glorious God wants to be part of his people's life. And also showing how God's glory changes his people when he shows up. But the people, when Moses comes down the mountain and his face is shining, he has these horns of light blasting in their faces, they're terrified. Aaron and the elders, they run away. They're terrified. And they're the they're terrified by what's happening. And I love how one commentator says, they were afraid because they know in their innermost souls that they could not stand before him from whom's, whose presence Moses had come. They knew by seeing Moses that the guy that he was with, the God he was with, was so glorious. They could not stand in that God's presence. They were terrified and they ran away. It's what we see again and again throughout the Bible. We see when people see or catch a glimpse of even just an angel or just someone sent by God was their first response. They fall to the ground in fear because they see something glorious, just even if it's just a reflected glory. And they're terrified. The light, the pure light of God makes people realize we cannot stand in his presence. It's reality. Actually, points more to God than to Moses. It points to who God is more than who Moses was. It actually shows us that God is so full of glory, so full of splendor and majesty, that just someone being around them, they're changed, and people can see that. That God is our glorious God. That God is so much more than our minds can fathom. That God is so much greater than we can even ponder. And it's that state of affair that so often we get away from actually looking at our glorious God. I can kind of understand it because sometimes we think of reverence and we think of looking at our glorious gods and we, and we think that's kind of away from us and, and we know the reality of the gospel and we know the reality of Jesus Christ and how God loves us and is so close and personal with us that that's what we hold on to and that's what we cling to and it's all good. But sometimes we, by clinging to the closeness of God through Jesus, we forget just who that God is. We forget his majesty. We get his greatness. We forget that actually that's what makes the gospel so glorious in the first place is that the Almighty comes down. And then we forget the glorious God and, and we're into his presence and it's all cool. It's all great. That I can just casually dabble with what he's called me to do and I forget the glory of God. That I get caught up in all these small things in my life and that clouds my view from looking up at the gloriousness 
of God. In a book of The Imperfect Disciple, an author, Jared Wilson, kind of puts it like this. He says, truly, I think one reason we aren't captivated by Christ's glory is because we have, diminished, we have a diminished capacity to be captivated, captivated by anything big. We are preoccupied with small things. In fact, we sometimes have an inverted sense of measurement in that big things seem to us small or familiar Why small things become big to us, at least in terms of our time and attention and energy. It is the funhouse mere effect of daily living in a consumeristic culture where we are inundated with all kinds of media and, and now even carry that media around in our pockets along with our gospel and find ourselves being pulled out Pulling out that media more often than we, uh, often because we sense that there will be something newer, more vital, or more exciting, more entertaining, more applicable to our situation somewhere among its endless clicks and pages, while the gospel can seem so one note and familiar. When our vision is constantly occupied by small, and I find that tendency happening in my life is that so often. I know God is glorious, but I, you, you let the small things of life cloud it and move me away from it. But these chapters like Exodus 30 and through the whole book of Exodus and the whole Bible are screaming at us. Look towards your glorious God and know who he is. Know how glorious he truly is because that makes his presence in our life all the more powerful, all the more sweet. And that we actually will be transformed when we behold God's glory. You will be transformed by God's glory. We also see in the story, not just the fact that it points to God and his glory, but we actually see how God shows his glory through his mediator, his chosen person to represent his people. And so in Moses, we see Moses being God's guide, the prophet, the person supposed to lead the people of God, and that he routinely has to intercede for them. He mediates on their behalf. He, he prays for them for God. He talks to God on their behalf. He stands between God and them. And that's what he's doing when he sees God's presence, when he, when he experiences and, and he sees God pass by, and when he comes down, it's because he was in God's presence now that he's shining, his face is shining, reflected God's glory. It was not his own glory but it came from being in the presence of God. And an interesting fact we see in the text that actually as he stayed down with the people, the glory would fade. His face would, would start fading out until he went and met with God again. And when he came back down, his face would shine anew. And so he had to put a veil over his face. It was this reflected glory as he met with God. But this mediator who stood between God and man and reflected God's glory actually points to the better mediator the perfect mediator, the better Savior, and that is Jesus Christ. And when we look at Jesus, we see he did the exact same thing that Moses did. He leads his people, he saves them, he stands between God and his people, and he has a glory that shines. But it's not a reflected glory. We see actually it's inherent to who he is, that when Jesus shines, it's the glory of God himself. And we see that through, uh, through the Gospels, and we see that through the words of the New Testament, but we see these accounts where we, the disciples actually caught a glimpse of it. They caught a glimpse of Jesus' glory shining. And it's funny, it's on a, another mountain when, Mo, when, a, when Jesus journeys up there and he takes three of his disciples with him. In Matthew 17, it says this, and after six days, 
Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by them shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light and behold there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him and Peter said to Jesus Lord it is good that we are here if you wish I will make three tents here one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah he was still speaking when behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but only Jesus. I love that account because it parallels Exodus, Exodus on purpose. That again, we see God's glory coming down on a mountain, and it comes down now in Jesus Christ, that he journeys up on a mountain just like Moses went up on a mountain. And God's glory comes up on that mountain, but it actually comes out through Jesus Christ, revealing who he truly is. And even the, the cloud that overshadows and a voice speaking out of him is what happens in Exodus when God's presence descends upon the mountain, is being done on purpose to point to Jesus as the better Moses to point to Jesus as the better meteor, to point to Jesus not just as someone who reflects God's glory, but actually is God's glory for us. And so when we see that, it's amazing how this story in Exodus 34, and if we're confused, or if we didn't realize that, we just have to read the New Testament to see the reality of that. The writer of Hebrews puts it really bluntly when he says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house was a, and was a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast, to our, uh, hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our one hope. The writer of Hebrews is saying, Moses was a servant. Jesus is the son. Moses was just part of that house. Jesus is the builder of the house. He is God. And we can know it. And we can see the glorious God through Jesus Christ. But we can ask, why is Jesus that better mediator? Why is it that when we see Jesus, do we see the glory of God? And we see that Jesus is not just the ultimate priest for us. He is the ultimate prophet for us. He is the ultimate king for us. That in him and, and, and through him are all things. That when we see Jesus, we see God himself come to us. We see how he saves us. Why is Jesus a better, mayor, better priest, meteor? Because he saves us. For Christ suffered for sins once and for all to bring the unrighteous to God. He did that for us. He died for us to bring us to God. Not only that, but we know that he now intercedes for us moment by moment, constantly, as he sits upon the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 says that Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him 
since he always lives to make intercession for them. That this is our glorious mediator. That he shows the glory of God and he continues forever and he lets us be with our glorious God. And when we are with our glorious God, we will be ever, forever changed because you will be transformed by God's glory. But this story is not just also about how anyone and everyone who knows God starts reflecting God's glory. This points to the glory that this fact is that the glory of any person who meets with God by faith starts, it starts to be known. That no one can have fellowship with our all-glorious God and kind of walk away from it unmarked. That when you know God, when you see God, when you have a relationship with God, you are changed. And it's funny because the authors, the biblical authors, knew this fact. They knew this fact. In Psalm 34, verse 5, it says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. That even the psalmist there knew the fact that if you look to God, you actually become radiant as well. That actually what we worship and what we put our attention to, where we give our attention actually affects us and changes us, molds us. And so when we look upon God, we are changed to reflect Him. And again, again, we see this truth, but I love the way that Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verses 18, in verse 18, he says, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree to Paul is talking about Christians here. He's actually talking and using the story of Moses and how Moses has to put a veil on his face. He's saying, no, we're not like Moses. We don't have to put a veil on our face. But actually when we meet with God, when we know God, when we see the glory of God, we actually are changed from one degree of glory to another. And the more we see Jesus, the more we see our glorious God, the more we are changed. It answers that question. How can we change ourselves? And the answer is we can't. In our own power, we can't. But the answer is also not get your act together or do something. The answer actually is to look upon our glorious God. Gaze upon him and you will be changed. Bit by bit. Maybe you're hard-headed like me. Maybe your eyes got some scales on them that need to fall off. But you need to gaze upon the glory of God. For when you truly see who God is, you are changed. When you see, truly see God is through the glory of Jesus Christ, you can never be the same again. That when we see the glory of Jesus Christ, it actually transforms us from the inside out. That when we need to keep our eyes fixed upon Him, that we need to look to Him, which means actually become Savior. Be less concerned about how you don't have the power because you don't. Look to Him. Our only hope lies in Him. So raise your eyes and gaze upon Him. Fix your eyes upon Him. Never let go. Don't get, let your gaze wander away. Fix your eyes on Him. For that is where our hope lies. It's interesting, when you see the New Testament, when you see some of the first proclamations of who Jesus is from John the Baptist, what does he say? He says, behold the Lamb of God. 
who comes to take away the sins of the world. I love that word behold, because it's not just look. It's not just, hey, peep over there. Notice who that is. No, it's behold. When you behold something, you hold it up. You keep your gaze upon, gaze upon it. You look at it with intent and purpose. And that is what we're called to do. Look upon the glory of God through Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? It means we have to actually see him. We actually have to know him. And the most sure file, guaranteed way we do that is we pick up his word, we open it up, and we see the glory of God. That when we pick up the word, we can look around and we see the glory of God and the fingerprints upon on, on nature and how it's created. Personally, we know how he operated through history. We know his very words given to his people for their benefit to grow us when we pick up his word and we read it. And we know it. It's funny, when you do that, you are transformed. That our minds are renewed constantly as we dive into the word of God. So if this is all true, that those who know the God and his glory, those who know the glory of Jesus, it also means that people should be able to see it. That from one degree to another, people actually should see that you've been around Jesus. I love the story in Acts, Acts 4.13, when... Uh, Peter and John are pulled before the council and they are questioning them for why they're preaching this gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love how Luke, the writer of Acts, adds this kind of comment in there in Acts 4.13 when it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love that. Why? Because it's saying anyone, everyone, you can be uneducated, common person, and a change. That when people know Jesus, they are changed, and people can actually see that being worked out in their life, bit by bit. Now, some of us are further down that road than other of us, and some of us are really hard-headed, and it takes longer for that transformation to be worked out in your life, but it happens. It's the natural result of knowing who God is, that the inward transformation that, his, that happens through the gospel now is being worked out in your life as you seek to know him and love our God. But notice what this does not say. As I've said before, it does not say, look to God and then get your act together. It doesn't even say get your act together and then look to God. What this says is look to God. Take your focus off getting your act together, actually look to God, and out of the natural outworking of being transformed, then you'll start doing what God has called you to do. Then when you read the Bible, you can break the Bible, the whole Bible, New Testament and Old Testament, up into two larger sections that are intermixed. And it's the law, and it's the gospel. The law declares what we need to do in light of our glorious God. The gospel declares what God has done. 
The problem we is we think the law should be what we do first and get that right before we look towards the gospel, when in reality it's the law, what we can't do, that drives us to the gospel, makes us fall on our knees as we realize that Christ has done it all, that he's given us life where we don't deserve it, how he saves simple wretches like me who continually mess up after he has saved us, after we, get, we can't get things right, but yet he saves us and he gives us a new life that now we can gaze upon God's commands and we see that's what I'm supposed to do, how I'm supposed to live. Not to earn anything, not to achieve anything, but in honor of how God saves me. Now I look towards his word and I know this is how I respond. And perfectly, yes. Stumbling, of course. But this is what he has called me to do. And that when you read the Bible, we see that it's true. And that whenever we get discouraged because we can't do this, it's again a reminder to look at the gospel and know that again. That every day we get up and we preach the gospel ourselves that Christ has saved us. And I walk in light of his salvation he has achieved for me. We rest assured with that. And as we stumble through life, back and forth, as we struggle through the power that he gives us to work for him, to, work for him, to live for him, to love for him, as we're doing that, as we're keeping our eyes on our glorious God, turns, we will be with him perfectly. For I love how 1 John says in 1 John 3, 2, when he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we will see him as he is. Catch that? How are we like him when he appears? Because we see him. Right now, we see him through the filter of our, our humanity, through the filter of life. We see him imperfectly because we're not finite, we're, we're, not, we're not safe, totally glorified beings. We can't see him perfectly. But when he appears, when he comes down once again to save all of his people, to right every wrong, to wipe away every tear, when he comes to bring his kingdom, when we see him, we'll see him as he is and we'll be transformed to be as he is. As much as we can, as glorified human beings, we will reflect him perfectly without sin. And that is what we wait for and hope for. And in the meantime, we fix our eyes on him, however imperfectly we are, our beholding is, and we wait and we walk in the light of him transforming us. So what do we do in light of seeing this? We behold our Christ. It's encouragement, again, to lift your eyes and look upon the glorious God. Dig into the Word. Pick up your Bible. Open it up and know who He is. If you question His glory, if you question His motives, if you question just like how He is and how He's worked through history, you pick up the Word and you read and you see it displayed for you, given for you in ways you can understand and you get a glimpse of who He is. You get a glimpse of God's glory. So know our glorious God. Fix your eyes upon him through the word and trusting in our Savior Jesus Christ and you will be transformed by God's glory. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for you. Thank you so much for your word that we can read it and know it and understand it and see how glorious you truly are. 
Lord, I just pray that we can keep our eyes fixed upon you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We can keep our eyes fixed upon you, Lord, and all your gloriousness. That we cannot, that we can be diligent in not looking away or being distracted. But even if we are, even if we haven't looked or behold it as we should, even as we stumble and fall, that we know and trust in you, Lord. We know that you are bringing us bit by bit, drawing us home, transforming us as you have promised. Lord, we love you, we seek you, and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Adam.